First, I'd like to check the sound. Will you raise your hand if you're straining to hear me? A little bit louder. Okay, can we, can we go a little bit louder? Thank you. And how, how does it sound now? It's all right? Okay, we're getting, we're getting the hang of this. <laughs> oh, good evening. Good evening, travelers on the path. Good evening, beautiful Sangha of women. Something I really appreciate about this particular retreat is the way that, that we lead with the heart energy that Narayan was speaking about last night. We lead with the heart. We make space for the heart. We move in the direction of freeing our hearts. And this evening, I'm going to pick up right where Narayan left off with wisdom. Wisdom as the fifth spiritual faculty. And, you know, you may have heard the metaphor. Often we talk about the path as being like a bird with two great wings. One wing being what we cultivate through the morning instructions, the wing of insight, the wing of wisdom. And the other wing being some of what we're cultivating during the Brahma-Vihara periods, the wing of the heart. Compassion, metta, but the whole thing is, is that it's all the same bird. And for a bird to take flight, for our paths to really gain momentum, both wings need to be developed in equal measure. So tonight I'm, I'm going to share a bit about one of my favorite uh, suttas, one of my favorite passages from the uh, discourses of early Buddhism called the Bahia Sutta. And basically, the pith of this sutta is that whatever is happening for you in this very moment is your entry point to the practice, is your entry point to cultivating a way of relating and seeing that will move you in the direction of love and wisdom. And I really mean anything. I mean the feeling of your hand touching your sheets as you lay down to rest in the evening. I mean the ache in your shoulders. I mean the state of your heart in this moment. I mean the experience of listening to this talk. And when we when we share from up here at the front of the room, not only do we have the best seat in the house because we get to see your faces, even with masks, we, we feel you. Um, you know, the words matter, but what really matters is, is what's between the words and what's beneath the words. So just inviting these 45 minutes is really a practice period with you. So I've mentioned I live in Durango. I live in southwestern Colorado. I live in what's called the Animus Valley. And there's a beautiful big river called the Animus River. And I live a couple blocks away from the river. And there's a long river trail that goes, you know, from the north to south end of town, many miles. I ride my bike on it. And I walk on it 
And when we were sheltering in place, it was part of my daily meditation to walk the river trail for an hour, an hour and a half. And it was just a a way after 25 years of living in Durango that I became uh, closer with, more intimate with the seasons and the life of the river, the bald eagles nesting and the egrets and the ducks. And it wasn't an easy time. It wasn't an easy time, the sheltering in place. And I would observe on this river walk what would be happening in my mind. You know, sometimes I'd feel quite open and peaceful and grateful. Sometimes I felt a measure of anxiety about the state of the world. And there were these ducks in the river. And I realize this is another wildlife thing, but I guess it's, it's part of just how I go through my days. And these beautiful ducks, kind of those luminescent green feathers. And the ducks just sit there, and they look so calm, in repose, so composed, but their feet are doing this. I thought, it's a little like that meditating. You know, you all look like these beautiful ducks and women sitting here, you know, attentive, open-hearted. But on the inside, there's all this stuff we do, right? Just to even be here at all. The mind's doing its duck feet dance. And, uh, and I, I just became drawn to just spend a little bit of time with these ducks. And, you know, I, I could just see my mind being like those feet, the separative consciousness proliferating, proliferating, proliferating. The ducks weren't proliferating. They were just there in the water. They were just there. And the, the words of this sutta that I will share with you this evening just started running through my heart as I would walk the river trail. In the scene is just the scene. That's it. In the herd is just the herd. In the cognized is just the cognized. And so I started practicing with this sutra. I mean, I practiced with it for a lot of years but it just kind of came forth for me in a particular way on these river walks because the sutta points to the territory of paradox, of a felt sense of immediacy, and the power of a bare attention. And as I talk about ducks, we know that According to the Buddhist teachings, we as human beings are, we have the capacities to awaken in a way that is particular to being born as a human being. So I don't want to take that metaphor too far. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a poignancy, you know, these moments where we feel the poignancy of love and loss. We feel the poignancy of the sweetness and the sorrow And I wanted to share with you a poem after being with some of you in the practice groups this morning by Mark Nepo. And I think this poem's been with me. I I was part of a burial a few weeks ago. I I, uh, led a green burial for someone in my community who died somewhat unexpectedly. And the experience of it, the image of it, you know, is still with me. 
was powerful to lower a casket made of seagrass into the ground among a small group of people who loved, who loved this dear elder woman. This is by Mark Nepo, called Adrift. Everything is beautiful, and I am so sad. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. The light spraying through the lace of the fern is as delicate as the fibers of memory forming their web around the knot in my throat. The breeze makes the birds move from branch to branch as this ache makes me look for those I've lost in the next room, in the next song, in the laughter of the next stranger. In the very center under it all, what we have that no one can take away and all that we've lost face each other. It is there that I'm adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. I am so sad, and everything is beautiful. Can you relate to that feeling? That's the heart. The feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. That sacred, mysterious energy that touches us as we become more and more present within our lives. So, the Bahia Sutta is from the Udana, which is a body of works, you know, Narayan was talking about the Teragata as the awakened utterances of, of the early women, the nuns. The Udana is called inspired utterances. Inspired utterances. And in the Bahia Sutta, the Buddha gave a direct liberating teaching to a man named Bahia. And I'm going to take a little bit of a risk for the purposes of this retreat. I'm going to change the pronoun of Bahia. I'm going to call Bahia a she. I'm going to change the, the gender identity. And, and um, Bahia probably was a he. But I noticed as I was taking in the story, playing with, with gender a bit, that it touched me differently when I imagine Bahia as a woman. And the who and the identity is less important. The teaching is what's, is what's important. And as we've been bringing forth in different ways so many of the women's stories and also um, what are considered feminine ways of knowing, they get left out. They become peripheral but they've been part of the path since the very beginning. And I think I won't get in too much trouble with the Dharma police. Um, <laughs> I think it'll be okay. Um, and, and just to name that the, that the suttas, the body of teachings that guide our practice here, they are historical in a way that's different than the myth I shared 
in my last, last talk. So there, there are, there's a historical basis. There's also a mythological basis that speaks to the deeper waters of our psyche, some archetypal dimensions. So Bahia was a woman who was well-practiced. She wasn't a follower of the Buddha, but she was very strong in terms of her capacity for renunciation. And my guess is that she was highly accomplished in samadhi, in the collecting, gathering, sometimes called concentration practice that we do. She knew how to unify her, her mind in a way that would allow for deeper realization and deeper insight to come forth. And Bahia was such a renunciant that she wore uh, not robes, but she wore bark. So she wove together bark to cover up her body. That's, I mean, it makes IMS really look like the upper middle path, huh? <laughs> she wore bark. And, um, and because her mind got so collected, she, she thought she was enlightened because of these concentrated states. And she was very well respected, but she also thought she was pretty great. <laughs> and, uh, and when she approached the Buddha, which I'll tell you about, you know, he said to her, not only are you not enlightened, you're not even on the path. You know, and it, it's interesting because our, our minds, some of us have, well, we each have our own tendencies and they emerge at different times. But, you know, sometimes there may be this feeling of, I've got this, I'm rolling along. I know what I'm doing. I own it. You know, or you may go in the other direction. You may feel like you never know enough. You're never quite as worthy of awakening as the other women in the room. You might kind of go between inflation and deflation in your sense of yourself, in the practice and in the, in the life. But, but he was well-respected. And so I'll take that to mean that she was mature in her personhood in many ways. So at one point, a, a deva, devas are these... I won't get into devas, but they're, they're kind of a spirit creature in Buddhist cosmology, kind of special creatures. And a deva who'd been a blood relative to Bahia came to her and said, it was a deva that told her, sorry, not the Buddha, it was a deva that told her, you're not an arhant, you're not enlightened, and you're not even, on, you're not even practicing in a way that's going to lead to your, your deepest freedom. You're caught in your ideas of yourself. And so Bahia, in her wisdom, asked the deva, who is awakened? Like, who can I learn from? Who has entered the stream of awakening? And I want to bring our attention to the word awake, because it's a word we use quite a bit up here. If you consider the opposite of awake, the opposite of being awake is the state of being asleep. Oh, if we're awakening, we are awakening from the, the fog of our misunderstanding. We are awakening from a state of being asleep on some level. 
And perhaps when you have aha moments, you might realize, how did I not see this before now? It's always been this way. I just, I just hadn't seen it. And so the Deva says to her, um, there's a city far away. When, he, when the Deva was speaking to her, this was at Savati, at Jetta's Grove. And uh, she pointed him, the Deva pointed her uh, toward the man we call the Buddha. And so the David did a good thing by, by telling her the truth. And Bahia, there weren't airplanes or buses in ancient India, so she walked. And a colleague of mine who's really tech-savvy Googled this on her phone, where Bahia walked and how far it would be. And it's said to be a 303-hour walk, basically from Mumbai to Savati. 303 hours, that's a long walk for someone who's motivated. And so she walked and made her way to the Buddha, and she got there, and uh, the Buddha had gone into town for the alms rounds. You'll see obstacles are almost always part of these, these teaching stories. And so she left the grove, and she went to find the Buddha on the alms round. And we hear these stories. Can you imagine... You know, you drive to IMS, you get all settled, we do the best we can up here to guide you in the practice. Can you imagine uh, having conditions of your life that would allow you to be in the presence of the Buddha's realization directly? The energy of that. You know, there's a reason that people would meet the Buddha and within five minutes awaken totally because the power of his transmission was so profound, so direct. And so she, she finds the Buddha, she puts her head to his feet, and she says, teach me the Dhamma, blessed one. Teach me the Dhamma for my long-term welfare and bliss. And so she was asking for what, from what she knew. She was saying, teach me this you know, for my happiness. And we know that we don't just come here for our own happiness, right? We we come here with the the wish that what we're doing here truly is of benefit to all beings. And the Buddha goes on to say it's not a good time. We're, you know, on alms rounds. It's like we're waiting for lunch. (laughs) And Bahia says to the Buddha, this is her plea. She says, it's hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for your life or what dangers there may be for my life. Please teach me the Dhamma. So she's like urgent. Urgent in in the sense of chanda, of zeal. And the Buddha said, it's not a good time. We're going for alms rounds. And she asks the Buddha a third time. It may be It's hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for your life, Buddha, or what dangers there may be for mine. Please teach me the Dhamma. And so um, the Buddha said, okay, okay. And this is what he says to her. And we can take this as instructions for ourselves, and I'll explain, I'll unpack this a bit. Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, 
there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, there will be only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in the seen, the heard in the heard, the sensed in the sensed, the cognized in the cognized, then bahia, there is no separate you in connection with that. When there is no separate you in connection with that, there is no separate you there. When there is no separate you there, you are neither here nor there nor yonder, nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Do you feel into that pointing? You're neither here nor there, nor yonder, nor between the two. There's there's not a fixed landing point, is what he's saying. And he's giving very specific instructions of, of how to practice. And basically, her mind was ready because of all of the earlier practices she's done. And as the story goes, um, she immediately awakens completely. There's the dawning of the Sure Heart's release just like that. And so the pointing of this teaching is, is some of what Narayan was pointing to in the talk last night, particularly the part on wisdom, the insubstantiality of our experience and how we coalesce. The insubstantiality of seeing the ducks in the river and the coalescing into Aaron's here, the ducks are over there, and here's the story about me and the ducks. How do we experientially realize the uh, truth of rising and passing? Why don't we directly perceive it? Because we know it in the coconut. I'm not telling you anything, you know, that's probably new. And the path is about learning to realize this for ourselves, ehipasiko, in our bones, in, in our hearts. And so the invitation is to look at what gets in the way. Why do we need to practice? So what gets in the way is our attachment to our conditioning. The conditioning's there for everybody. You know, the patterning's there. And we get inside of it. It's like the face is pressed to the glass. We we are seeing um, through it, which is not the same as seeing beyond it. I appreciate Carl Jung's articulation of some of how this conditioning and patterning fe- feels. You know, For the most part, it's really to be understood, not to be plowed through, not to just evaporate, but to really be understood. Carl Jung 
said, I feel very strongly that I am under the influence of things or questions which were left incomplete and unanswered by my parents and grandparents and more distant ancestors. It often seems as if there were an impersonal karma within a family, which is passed on from parents to children. It has always seemed to me that I had to complete or perhaps continue this which previous ages had left unfinished. Do you ever feel that? Like we're, we're turning the light of attention on these pieces <coughs> that we are responsible to, but that don't just belong to us directly. You know, we're responsible for our actions. It's like, oh, this feeling that previous ages had left something unfinished, and here we are. So our conditions and views and beliefs and identities can get in the way of perceiving. Basically, what they do is they, the concepts of our minds paint the reality that we perceive. So there is a reality. And the concepts paint it with whatever the story of your conditioning or my conditioning is. Just like, like you can paint a wooden fence. And the wood's still there, but it looks white or red or blue. And this patterning, it narrows um, the awareness. It reduces the awareness. It constricts the, the awareness. And when the awareness becomes constricted, there's a loss of basic wakefulness. When the awareness gets constricted, there's a loss of the intrinsic wakefulness of Buddha nature. It gets painted over with concepts. So in the instruction that the Buddha gives to Bihiya, in the scene is only the scene. What is meant by that instruction is, you know, here's your eye. You're seeing colors and shapes, textures. And basically, the workings of the eye, that which is external, they come into contact, eye consciousness arises, and that's what's happening, rolling along, through all the sense doors, all the moments of our lives. That's what's happening. And we add on extra. We add on. This is me. I don't like this. I like this. This threatens my sense of what's familiar. I want more of this. We, we add on. And so in a, if, you, if you just take a moment to... Right now, in the herd is only the herd. What happens in your perception? In the scene is only the scene. That's it. It's 
and what the mind is aware of in terms of thoughts or emotions and what is cognized is only what is cognized. Do you feel a bit of a shift in how you're perceiving when you take on that instruction? I do. Things become more direct, more spacious. All of the mind-making doesn't have so much of a place to land. The separative consciousness doesn't have so much of a place to land. The friction of suffering, the friction of the stress, doesn't have such a thrust behind it. In this bare attention that uh, is being pointed to here. And so cultivating this way of perceiving, not just because it's a fun thing to do, but because it leads to uh, an undoing of the concepts that tell us we don't belong. That keep us a little bit braced. This is a passage from the book Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. I don't know that he's read the Bahia Sutta, but to me this this explains this, this relates some capacity for this way of perceiving that's being pointed to. And he's, he, he wrote this about an experience um, that happened when he was in Bali. Late one evening, I stepped out of my little hut in the rice paddies of eastern Bali and found myself falling through space. Over my head, the black sky was rippling with stars densely clustered in some regions to the point that it almost blocked out the darkness between them and more loosely scattered in other areas, pulsing and beckoning to each other. Behind them all streamed the great river of light with its several tributaries. Yet the Milky Way churned beneath me as well for my hut was set in the middle of a large patchwork of rice paddies separated from each other by narrow two-foot-high dikes, and these paddies were all filled with water. The surface of these pools by day reflected perfectly the blue sky, a reflection broken only by the thin, bright green tips of new rice. But by night, the stars themselves glimmered from the surface of the paddies, and the river of light whirled through the darkness underfoot as well as above. There seemed no ground in front of my feet, only the abyss of star-studded space falling away forever. I was no longer simply beneath the night sky, but also above. And the immediate impression was one of weightlessness. I might have been able to reorient myself to regain some sense of ground and gravity were it not for a fact that confounded my senses entirely. Between the constellations below and the constellations above drifted countless fireflies. 
There are lights flickering like the stars, some drifting up to join the clusters of stars overhead, others like graceful meteors slipping down from above to join the constellations underfoot. And all these paths of light upward and downward were mirrored as well in the still surface of the paddies. I felt myself at times falling through space, at other moments floating and drifting. Where is the David in all of that? It's known. It's perceived. It's uh, shimmering. It's flickering. It's rising and falling. It's profoundly connected. Beyond even interconnected, just connected. He's kind of talking about a a boundless type of state. And this is, you know, some of how insight works. It it just happens like a flash. Conditions are such this arises, and our job isn't to have his experience. That's not what matters. What matters is the melting of the separateness. What matters is um, not getting so caught up in the objects being noticed that we miss that which is noticing them, that we miss the, the experience of the, of the citta, that which has the capacity to awaken. So we're cultivating a new way of seeing that begins to undo the power of how much the concepts stick to the perceptual process. You know, the concepts are so deep. You know, we, we freeze frame ourselves and we freeze frame one another. You had that, that experience of like, you think you know who someone is because of how something has been in the past, but you don't actually know who they are because you're different and they're different. We, we paint each other. We paint our world. It goes very, very deep. And when we open more fully to this spontaneous process of knowing that's being pointed to in the sutta, there is a there is a consciousness that has a a capacity for selflessness, that has a capacity for metta, that has a capacity for an intuitive kind of, of wisdom. We're opening to that which is reliable, like the faith Narayan talked about, but it's from a different place. It's not from having everything arranged just perfectly. And that's from this long process of, of conscious awareness. And as we, as we practice seeing in this way, we begin to see what's, what's actually unfolding moment to moment, which is different from the extra. There's a lot of extra. 
And so as, as we notice in these momentary ways, um, there's a growing steadiness, a growing connection, a growing trust that, that dissolves into that which is known over and over and over. And when we see in this way, the mind becomes a lot less interested in craving. It's just not as compelling. It's not as satisfying. The hit, it's it's kind of stepping out of that cycle a bit. And the joy, the peace, is just born from a deeper place. James Baldwin was talking to a group of writers, and he says, you write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. He says, the world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. Is this path altering the way you look at reality? Even altering your ideas about what the word reality may mean or point to? Because it's all a finger pointing to the moon. That's all we're doing up here. A finger pointing to the moon. And so there becomes this deepening... You know, the ages-old spiritual question, who am I? Who who am I? Because it's not nothing. It's empty, but it's not nothing. Deepama, beloved, beloved, realized... uh, Master, I don't know what to call her. I know she's been a profound inspiration in my own practice, and she has walked and been here at IMS. It's, re- it's remarkable, the body of teachers <laughs> who have found their way here, including Deepa Ma. And when she was asked about one of the, the misunderstandings in Buddhist teachings, that, that if we get rid of the confusion, if we get rid of all the craving and aversion and Longing and hate and ignorance, if, if that melts away, somebody said, it sounds like life might be kind of gray and dull. And where's the juice? And does awakening mean we're going to be boring gray blobs? No. Deepama said, oh, you don't understand. She said, there is so much sameness in ordinary life. We're always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. Once greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. That's the yumminess of liberation. That's the yumminess. And so the, the, this practice of what's being pointed to in the scene is only the scene, in, in the herd is only the herd, the cognized, the sensed, um, 
makes room for reality to touch us without all of the concepts in the way because the concepts won't, won't get us there. And so, as you're exploring in this way, sounds, sights, sensations, you know, rather than I'm seeing the tan wall, it's like, okay, maybe you, you move into the territory of, of more of the verb, oh, seeing is happening. And tend to the momentary process, seeing is happening. Color is being known. Known by what? What, what is it that's hearing my voice right now? What is it that's aware of an emotion that's present for you right now or that's sensing the, the energy of our sangha in the room? You know, it, it has more of the flavor of the ineffable, more of the flavor of the mystery, of the sacred, of a kind of freedom that keeps beckoning us. And so this instruction from the Buddha is saying, you're not just the monologue in your mind. You're not just the flesh sitting here. And uh, Bahia's urgency in asking the Buddha three times to teach her, I want to tell you what happened next. So she woke up completely. The Buddha went back to be with his monastics. And Bahia um, got between a, a calf, a young calf, and his mother. And she was killed. You know, she was killed. The, the, the mother was protecting the, the calf. And um, after the meal, the Buddha was with many monastics and saw that Bahia had lost her life. And upon seeing her, he said to the monastics, take Bahia's body and basically take the body away, cremate it, and build a memorial because your companion in the holy life has died. And the Buddha said, monastics, Bahia of the bark cloth was wise. She practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma and did not pester me <laughs> with issues related to the Dhamma. Bahia of the bark cloth monastics is totally unbound. So basically the Buddha um, was confirming what had happened and also confirming her persistence. She was persistent. She kept going after wanting this instruction. She listened to the input of the deva that told her, you need to get on the path. You're, you're misguided here. And then on realizing the significance of Bahia's awakening just before her passing, I'm just going to read this to you. It doesn't have to make sense, but it's kind of more poetic than literal. It's so beautiful. 
where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. There the stars don't shine, the sun isn't visible. There the moon doesn't appear, their darkness is not found. And when a practitioner has realized this for herself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, she is freed. So he's mostly saying what it is not, rather than giving us an object of what it is to go get. It's what it is not, it's the process of that which falls away. And the beauty is that in it all, we're, we're just still, we're persons. We're persons. We're persons here practicing with our personalities as women. He's pointing to this beautiful paradox. And I often think of my mother when I, when I, when I consider the instructions to, to Bahia. You know, I, I think of how when my mother got her terminal diagnosis, how she, her heart opened. It opened, the, like the diagnos- the diagnosis, her knowing that she would she would not be here in a few months because of, of you know she died from a very aggressive form of cancer. She died way too young. But it was so it was so beautiful to see at the end of her life the incredible opening of her heart. You know the incredible opening when she knew there wasn't that much time left. She started kissing me on the lips, saying, "Aaron, I love you." Aaron, I love you. Aaron, I love you. It was so beautiful. You know, and, and so knowing that, you know, for each of us, the, the time of death is uncertain. We don't know. But, but we know um, that which is born dies. It was just the this, this sense of making room for um, following that faith that Narayan was talking about. You know, allowing a kind of zeal and purposefulness of the practice. I I know for me, at the end of my life, I will never be sorry (laughs) for all the time I've spent practicing. You know, practicing is good medicine for living and also good medicine for dying. So so there's a way that Bahia followed her heart, made the journey, did the practice. You know, she she didn't know that, that shortly after awakening, you know, she would take leave of her body. We never know. You know, so, so when you consider the practice from this place, you know, to, to me the relevance and preciousness becomes centered in a certain way. And I don't say that to be a downer or be a somber, but, but it really for me brings a deliberateness to how I spend my time, the choices I make, my relationship to the possibility of freedom and the life I want to live. We'll end with a poem. Actually, not a poem, but a paragraph from Women of the Way by Sally Tisdale. Standing on the small porch of Hakuan, she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath followed by the shadow of a hungry crow, and she saw that little wren arose, abided, and fell away. 
And then she saw that a rising arose, abided, and fell away. And that abiding arose, abided, and fell away. And that falling away arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing arose, this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Take a moment of quiet. May our practice together be for the welfare of all beings and may the beneficial energies generated by our practice travel especially where they're needed most. Thank you for your attention this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate